Hi, welcome to this Physicians Weekly's podcast. My name is Dr. Rachel Giles. I'm your host for this podcast. And today we've got some great interviews as usual. This is Physicians Weekly. This is episode 102 already. This week we have two guests, starting with Dr. Amy Zarling, an associate professor of clinical psychology at the University of Iowa. Dr. Zarling's lab focuses on developing and evaluating effective programs for hard-to-reach, under-resourced, and or underserved populations, which primarily focus on improving family health. She has some interesting research she talks about. Secondly, we have our regular contributor, who goes by the pseudonym Dr. Medlaw. This week, Dr. Medlaw talks about how and when one must disclose one's own errors. Did you know that hiding an error will underpin the independent intentional tort of fraudulent concealment, and because it's an intentional choice, it will not be covered by malpractice insurance? And that the statute of limitations for fraudulent concealment is also three times longer than that for malpractice? Keep listening to learn more. Enjoy listening. So thank you, Dr. Zarling, for joining us today. I I just wanted to start talking to you about the loneliness epidemic and some of the aspects and and how you measure certain aspects of it. Yeah. So one of my colleagues, Dan Russell, who actually just retired from our department, he developed the UCLA loneliness scale. So that is what originally got me involved in loneliness is his work. And his scale is the most widely used measure of loneliness. It's a self-report measure. And so that's how we how we measure it. But then, of course, as you mentioned, it has become an epidemic loneliness, especially because of COVID or since COVID, it has gotten even worse. And as our society becomes more digital, which, of course, has lots of advantages, it also has some downsides, which (laughs) is that people are not connecting in person as much anymore, which is a contributor to loneliness. Right. So uh, you performed a study with an intervention aspect to this. Could you first describe a little bit about the rationale behind that and how th- what the methodology involved? Yeah. So I am a researcher and clinical psychologist, and one of my areas is in uh, behavior change and psychotherapies. So the particular type of therapy that I that I practice and I subscribe to is called acceptance and commitment therapy. And this is what's typically referred to as a third wave of cognitive behavioral therapies. And what that means is that essentially those types of therapies include acceptance and mindfulness type techniques in addition to the typical cognitive behavioral techniques to help people who are struggling or who are suffering to help them, you know, reduce their symptoms and, you know, change their behavior. So um, acceptance and commitment therapy had never been utilized in the treatment of loneliness before. And so we thought it was worth a shot. And the United Insurance Company was, you know, willing to give it a shot as well. And so we developed an eight-module online intervention pretty much completely self-paced that the older adults could do on their own time. Um, We did have them also connected to a peer coach, meaning that they could uh, call or text with that person to kind of process what the modules were about and to ask any questions. And so our methodology was to examine the effectiveness from pre to post as well as one month follow-up 
on loneliness compared to a group, a similar group of older adults who did not receive the intervention. And of course, not planned was that this was during COVID lockdowns. So, you know, that was not planned at all, but it ended up this was right at the beginning of the pandemic and at the height of the lockdowns and social distancing. Well, that was an opportunity, I suppose, but also a serious confounder to your results. Could you talk about what some of the results were that you saw? Yeah. So from uh, four participants who completed all eight of the modules, their average loneliness significantly decreased from pre to post. And it was what we would call a small to medium effect. So it wasn't a extremely large effect, but it also wasn't small either. So it was it was decent. And then at the one month follow up that that maintained. Now, if you compare it to the people who, you know, were lonely at the outset. So there were some people who actually did the intervention who didn't report significant loneliness, (laughs) which, which we thought was interesting. So if you take out the people who were just significantly lonely at the beginning, their loneliness decreased even more in the large range, um, which makes sense, right? Because people who are more lonely, they have more room to improve, right? So, so the intervention was significantly more effective for them and was a large effect in terms of helping them decrease their loneliness. All right. Can you describe what some of the methodology is in the modules? I mean, what sort of uh, training is oh, there? Sure. Yep. Just just for the human aspect. I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the very first thing that's really important is helping them identify what's important to them. What, who is important to them? Who do they want to be in their relationships? What kind of relationships do they want? And what's important to them? So we kind of get our foot in the door by having them identify what do you want your relationships to look like? You know, that that may be, you know, kind of discrepant from where they are right now, but how might they want it to look? And so really helping them connect with that. And, and then from there, having them pick each week, so each of the eight modules, they pick an action that they will do in between this, this module and the next one to kind of push their social boundaries a little bit. Now, as you can imagine, that was very difficult with during the lockdowns, but they got creative in terms of how to connect socially during that time that would be consistent with you know, who they want to be in their relationships, because a lot of these folks had just kind of isolated themselves. And so the the intervention was really about pushing them out of their comfort zone and connecting with people. So, okay, of course, that's easier said than done, right? Because often with loneliness, folks have thoughts about social situations being awkward or too difficult, or people are going to judge me. That often comes as a you know, as beliefs and thoughts along with loneliness. And so the intervention focused on helping them identify those thoughts. We called them sticky thoughts and helping them kind of notice those thoughts and be able to choose behavior that was consistent with their values anyway. So there's lots of exercises to help them realize, oh, like this is a silly thought or I don't have to listen to this thought or, you know, that's my past talking. And I... I can go write a letter to my friend or email my friend, even if I'm having that thought that I'm going to look silly if I reach out. I see. Yeah. So that's the main, those are the main ways that the intervention tries to help. I understand. Oh, that's exciting. Interesting. And I'm just curious, was, you mentioned isolation too. Is there a distinction between isolation and loneliness? Yes, absolutely. Definitely. So some people are isolated and they're not lonely. 
So loneliness is really about a discrepancy between the relationships you want and the ones that you have. And that's either in number or quantity or quality. So if someone isolates and they're fine with the level of quantity and quality of their relationships, then, you know, that's not necessarily a problem. So, yes, I appreciate the question. There is a difference for sure. And if, if you're looking at um, confounders for this this data and this information, these are people that are lonely. They they typically would have an additional, and I don't want to say comorbidities because that's not exactly quite true. Some of them would just be social circumstances. Um, how do you pull out and define what some of the underlying causes might be? And how do you figure out that some of the comorbidities, if you'll have me say that word, can be mitigated? Yes, that's a really good question. So we we found that most of these folks are not depressed, you know, kind of at first, we, we, you know, when we started, we kind of assumed that would maybe be a comorbidity, like you're saying. And, you know, it wasn't for a lot of them. And I think that part of loneliness may be a normal developmental part of aging. And so we also have a second study that we're working on that shows that that view of aging does impact your um, feeling of loneliness and how well the intervention worked for you. And that people who had positive views of aging were much more likely to you know, have a successful outcome. And so I think views of aging, at least when it comes to, again, an older population, that factors into loneliness and, and what is going on. How oh, interesting. Okay, that's fascinating. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, since most of our listeners are, are clinicians of some flavor, what are sort of the recommendations and take-home messages you can give to people when they're looking out for their patients and want to make sure that their patients aren't suffering unnecessarily from loneliness? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think the first thing is, you know, which may be counterintuitive, but not to pathologize it. You know, it could be a very adaptive response to their circumstances. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it can turn into a problem, of course, but, you know, loneliness could ju- could be signaling that the person needs an adjustment to their relationships. And we can either respond to that in an adaptive, healthy way, or we can respond to that in a not healthier, adaptive way. And so I would say, you know, help your patients, you know, recognize that loneliness feeling and honor it. And, you know, notice what that may be telling them about their current relationships. And, you know, of course, then getting to after that, getting to maybe problem solving and how to fix that. Right. And a few weeks ago, the Surgeon General put out a, a statement saying that this is something that's of high urgency and should be actionable. Could you comment on that? Did you Were you aware of that report? Yeah, I did hear that. I mean, to me, I think that's what's even more important than about online or um, digital interventions. You know, I, of course, love face-to-face interventions, and that's how I was, you know, originally trained. But we are at the point when we've got massive public health problems like this. We need quicker, accessible, feasible, low-cost interventions to help the most people possible. And so that's why I do think this study is hopefully one of many to come um, where we can also provide publicly available interventions like this. Unfortunately, this one isn't for various reasons, but I hope it also provides inspiration to other clinicians, researchers to like, let's keep going on this because we need, again, like I said, low cost, feasible, accessible, scalable ways to reduce this problem. 
No, I just really wanted to thank you for your time and insights. I think it's a very important topic that doesn't get the medical attention it needs as, as part of a comprehensive approach, an integrative approach to, to treating patients. So thank you for your research and your time. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Physicians Weekly is back again with our regular contributor, Dr. Medlaw, a board-certified radiologist and medical malpractice attorney, this time to discuss disclosing your own errors. Dr. Medlaw, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. We've talked about disclosing when another doctor makes an error, but how about when the error is yours? Well, that's obviously the toughest situation. You have a duty to inform the patient, but you have reasonable personal fears about what admitting an error can cost you. Of course, and you know, it's the answer people don't want to hear, but it's true. It's the first issue, the duty to the patient that binds you though. So you have to tell the patient about the problem because it affects their health. But do you have to say that your error caused it? Well, let's say that a surgeon uh, injures the common bile duct during a cholecystectomy and they immediately recognize the problem. They do an expert repair and the patient has a completely uncomplicated recovery. Now, the surgeon ethically then properly intends to tell the patient about the issue because even though the patient did well, they still are now at a risk for developing a stricture that they didn't face before. But is it, is it just enough to just generally caution about stricture without admitting that they created that risk? And the answer is that a patient is entitled to know how they came to their present state of health. They're entitled to know the cause. Uh, you wouldn't have a problem telling them if it was their own physiology that caused the issue. And that applies no less if the cause is you. How important does an issue have to be to mandate disclosure? Uh, the legal standard of what should be disclosed is what we call materiality uh, of the matter to the patient's present and future health. And when a court is looking at that, they'll probably mirror informed consent and require disclosure of what a reasonable patient would want to know. So very minor matters, very limited matters, mistakes that were caught before any harm was done, uh, they don't have to be disclosed. Uh, but a court would want to see an event beyond that disclosed. The disclosure can be contextualized, though, can't it? Sure, as long as that doesn't come off as a self-excuse. So the surgeon who injured the common bile duct can put it in the context of that being a known complication that was discussed preoperatively. But don't treat it as like a get-out-of-jail-free card or leave the patient feeling like, you know, they're the ones being blamed for having agreed to the surgery. The better context is just to explain that stricture is unlikely because the problem was caught and repaired early. Would informing as to future care also be part of the disclosure? Well, it, absolutely. In fact, that's essential. Uh, this goes directly to mitigating any future harm because it would allow earlier intervention. So it's economically a good thing for the doctor to do as well as an ethical requirement. So, for example, even though the surgeon is going to point out that stricture is unlikely, they should explain that issues like pain or jaundice are important indicators that a stricture has developed and that the patient should seek immediate attention if those occur and should also tell any subsequent doctors about the error. If the doctor fails to reveal the error, is that malpractice? It's actually worse. 
Malpractice is negligence. Negligence is failing to act as was reasonable under the circumstances, but without intention. Hiding an error, well, that will underpin the independent intentional tort of fraudulent concealment. And because it's an intentional choice, it won't be covered by malpractice insurance. And the statute of limitations for fraudulent concealment is also usually three times longer than that for malpractice. Now, that having been said, non-disclosure can overlap with malpractice in significant ways. What are you referring to? Well, there are two issues. The first is the practical one, that not telling the patient about the error, thereby preventing them from follow-up attention, will increase damages because the eventual harm will be worse. That's what we referred to earlier. Uh, there's also the fact that non-disclosure can toll the statute of limitations from running, which extends the patient's time to sue. So the approach to disclosure should be one that leaves the patient informed of how the problem occurred and what to look out for as a consequence so they can protect their health in the future. Exactly. How about if the facility requires disclosure or the state has an apology law? How does that affect the process? Well, these are very effective programs for decreasing litigation risk and damages. Uh, hospital disclosure programs may actually be coupled to reasonable settlement offers. And apology laws, which over 30 states have, allow for statements that help decompress patient anger and may avoid a lawsuit altogether. However, this is the big however, these processes are actually very highly structured. And to take advantage of a shield that will block the use of a statement in which you disclose the error, as evidence in a malpractice case, you have to follow very specific steps, including using language that the law requires. So put it simply, don't just plunge in on your own. So how should the doctor approach this? Uh, you start by actually telling any party that may have to cover or share in a liability payment. Uh, a malpractice carrier can deny both defense and coverage costs to a doctor who's made statements uh, that are basically inculpatory uh, without checking with the carrier first. And a group or hospital that gets drawn into an action, either through vicarious liability or partnership liability, they are not likely to be supportive of a doctor uh, who never gave them a chance to weigh in on the issue before they started talking to the patient. Uh, you'll also need to follow any procedural steps that are in place and that specifically take advantage of protective statutes like apology laws. And that may include meeting with the hospital attorney or risk management to go over such requirements. Now that having been said, promptness is essential. To demonstrate that you acted in the interests of the patient the disclosure has to be carried out within a reasonable time after you become aware of the error. So you need to do those initial alerts and get the process moving quickly. How about documenting the error? Well, remember that what you write in the chart will be discoverable. And so you want to keep your statement very directed and very minimal. You recite the medical facts, including any additional treatment that was or may be needed as a result of the error. And you do not go into your personal feelings or try to shift blame. Uh, and this applies as well if there's an institutional requirement of an incident report. And most people think, well, an incident report isn't discoverable. There is a trend to discovering them. So you want to draft those 
professionally and discreetly. How about the time and place for the disclosure? Well, if it's going to be done through an institutional program, then they will set it up, you know, likely in an office or a conference room. But it's more likely, just statistically, that it will be done privately. And for that, you want to choose a quiet location where you know that you will have enough time available to answer questions fully. Because remember, this is about informing the patient, but also about decompressing anger. Patients need to feel that they understand and that they've been heard. How about who should be there? You keep it limited. The patient and their close family, uh, the patient's parents or their designated uh, medical decision maker if they're a minor or they're incompetent, the next of kin if the patient has died. The point is that you want it kept small because that will keep the disclosure orderly, but you don't want to leave out anyone who has a legal right to know the information because that'll look like intentional concealment. How about risk management or a lawyer? Should they be there? If the facility is running things, one or both will be. Uh, However, this is where it is essential that the patient not see you as their flunky. This is a chance for you to, you know, to affirm trust in you as the physician. If you sound like you're just spouting inauthentic legal talking points, or worse, you're just taking your cues from a suit, you'll undermine yourself irrevocably. So what should the doctors say? Well, first, you briefly review, in layman's terms, the events that led up to the error, stopping to ask, do you have any questions at each point? Then you do the same with the clinical significance of the error and any necessary follow-up. While you emphasize that the situation is now in hand, and at the end, and this I cannot overemphasize, you ask, is there anything that I have not covered that you would like to ask? Because you as a doctor may really have just assumed something that they as the patient don't quite get. The important point is that the patient should not feel swamped with this obfuscatory med speak or think that the doctor is trying to talk their way out of things. Your goal is to have the patient come away with an understanding of what happened and why it happened and most importantly, the perception that the doctor is a trustworthy informant. Should the doctor actually say, I'm sorry? Well, the words that should be used will frankly vary with whether an apology statute is in play because the state may only shield certain phrases. But the general answer is yes, there should be an actual statement in some form of regret and remorse. Uh, And it should be simple and it should be sincere uh, none of the, no hedging like, oh, I'm sorry it happened, as though you were somehow not involved, or, you know, I'm, I'm sorry if you feel that the care was not what you expected, as though the problem is just the patient's perception. I mean, let's be frank, nothing guts the really positive ethical and legal effects of a disclosure, like the patient feeling that they were just blown off with a non-apology. What if the doctor is concerned that the disclosure may actually cause harm to the patient, such as a psychologically adverse reaction? Well, non-disclosure in these cases is referred to as benevolent deception or therapeutic privilege. However, even just those terms tell you that if this approach, even if it's sincerely meant for the patient's good, it's really just antithetical to the concepts of patient autonomy and shared decision-making that 
just actually underlie the very right of the patient to the information about the error in the first place. And frankly, it also looks self-serving for cases eventually brought based on the error. So if you're genuinely concerned that disclosure may have an adverse effect on the patient, then get an ethics committee or a patient advocate involved. And that involvement will ensure that the disclosure is done properly, either to the patient or to someone who can act for them. We have been discussing disclosure to patients. How about disclosure to other doctors? Oh, that's a great question. The answer here is that the error is a necessary piece of clinical information that must be given to a colleague who's taking over or sharing care of the patient. But discussion is not enough. The facts must be also recorded in the chart because later consequences may be end up being handled years later by physicians who were not made privy to the uh, actual problem originally. So even though you're going to caution the patient to always report the issue when they give their own medical history, never rely on that. Document. So can you summarize the essential points? Sure. As a fiduciary matter, be prompt, be clear about the error and its ramifications, and create a charted record for reference by other treaters. As a legal matter, be authorized by indemnifiers and potential co-defendants, and be aware of the statutory limits that your state may have on apologies. And as a personal matter, be sincere. Great advice. Thank you as always, Dr. Medlaw. Thanks for the chance to talk about this important topic. Thanks for listening to Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 